Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Disc Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. And today I'm very honored to have as my guest David Hayes, also known as David Slagter, earlier in his career. Uh, we'll get some insights about the retro Canadian recording industry and working at major studios, recording world-class albums, and much more. So join me for a look inside the Canadian music scene from someone who's been part of it for many decades. Uh, David is best known as an engineer at uh, some of the top Canadian studios and has a lifetime of experience to share. So uh, thanks for joining me today, David. How are you? I'm fine and uh, and a little old, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm fine. Thanks. Well, good. Well, I must say, uh, when I read through your dossier, I thought, man, this guy's done a lot of stuff. That really struck me. But then also the diverse things that you've done as well. I thought this is a multifaceted guy with lots of different interests. And and the other thing I think that struck me is that you were willing to get your hands dirty in building your life and your career. So you're not a you're not a poofter. No, absolutely not. And <laughs> challenges uh, I enjoy. So I've taken on quite a few, and I like to be busy and. Um, you know, when the, if, if there were slow slots in the, uh, recording, um, field, then I looked for something else, you know, that, to t- take me through a week or two, if that was necessary and enjoyed it, enjoyed the challenges that, that did come up that are on that li- list that you're talking about and exhausted yeah. me too. Uh, when, <laughs> once I put it all down thinking, good grief, no wonder I'm tired and old. <laughs> Well, I guess at the time you're just kind of doing what you do, right? And then when you look That's at it. it later from the landscape, you're going, wow, that was mm-hmm. pretty good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's it. Well, good. That speaks well of you. I mean, it's, you know, some people sort of focus on one thing and that's what they do and that's what they get real good at what they do. And then other people are more sort of broad. They like to try different things. And, and what I found in that is that it helps you with the other things. Yeah, I th- I'd agree. Right. I mean, staying open to all kinds of challenges, I think is, is always healthy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then like with the studios and stuff, I'll ask you about that in a bit, but Mm -hmm. you know, when you, when you, when you've done part of the wiring and you've done part of the design and stuff, you, you kind of get you where you live, right? You're there. That's very true. Um, but to, to talk about the wiring and stuff, I'm really uh, not, haven't been had two hands on at all, considering the 45 or so years that I've been in it. I've been lucky to have excellent, you know, um, technical guys working around and for me and with me. And, uh, nice. they would take that responsibility on, which is just fine with me. Uh, the technical yeah. end of it really doesn't, uh, doesn't appeal to me much at all, but the creative side and certainly the music, yeah. that's it, you know? Yeah. Some guys, their eyes light up when you talk about that sort of stuff. And I'm, I'm I kind know. of with you. I, I mean, I'll oversee it and I'll, I'll mm-hmm. try to understand it the best I can. Me but, too. Uh, Man, there's how many miles of wire is in a studio when you when you add it up? You bet. And 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 what they're into is every bit as intense and detailed as uh, as what you and I are into. So, you know, yeah. how thinly do you want to spread? You know, your time. Yeah. You know, and when you and of course when somebody's good at something and you watch them do it, as mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's a thing of beauty. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So. I'm always curious about people's journey too. So you started out as a drummer from what I, what I read on your, uh, your information that you've got into the recording side of it. Um, as a drummer, no, not as a, as, as a player, but, uh, at nine years old, I started, uh, drumming and, uh, that, that led me into, you know, the music side of the interest for the music side of it. Um, and then I, as a teenager, early teenager, and right up until I guess about 20 years old, I was in bands. I played in bands. I think you read that on that little sheet. Yeah. Um, but I realized that, okay, uh, I, I was good. I got quite good. And, uh, 
but you know, at that time, looking around at okay, well, quite good just isn't really good enough. And and how much uh, effort and dedication do I want to put into drumming versus the general uh, love of music and and the sound of music and how it moved you know, move someone. So I got very um, lucky to get an opportunity to work in a studio at Toronto Sound mm -hmm. with Terry Brown and Doug Riley. And I thought, okay, yeah. fabulous. You know, um, I'll uh, I'll vent my musical um, interests there in a studio and learn how you record. That became much more exciting and important to me than how you drum. You know, I was, yeah, right. so uh, yeah. So that decision was made pretty early on, really. Yeah, I was curious about that too because quite often, you know, sometimes people have a plan, and other times they just sort of fall into something. Were you did that just sort of come up for you? Um, I met Doug Riley, which was I I think really the the open door. Um, an amazing piano player, producer, man, um, and uh, he he and I struck up quite a relationship. And he had mentioned when we were working together on on Hair the uh, the the Broadway musical in Toronto, yeah. um, that he and his partner, Terry Brown, who has an incredible level of respect from the industry and deservedly so, um, were, or had just opened a studio and, and that tweaked my ears. And he said, you should go and talk with Terry. He's the, uh, you know, the engineering expert and just see if there's a position open there, which there may be. So I did. And, uh, Terry said, mm, not right now, you know, we we're, we're full up, but give me a call in, uh, you, you know, in a couple of months and we'll just see how it works out. So I did. And he said, yeah. yep, the chap that we had hired didn't work out. So, uh, you're next on the, on the line, come on in and, and, uh, I'll let you know what, you know, what, uh, what we need and see if it's a fit. And it was, and that was, oh, uh, good. so yeah, so that was the start of, uh, me engineering. Well, assistant been, engineering. Oh, this would have been late '69, early '70. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. So, so that's an exciting time. That's an exciting time around Toronto in the music business, it, right? And the world. I mean, pop and you know the rock and roll and 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 uh, R and B. I mean, the whole the whole musical scene was just really, really expanding, yeah. excitingly. So yeah, that that was. Uh, I was swept up in that. There's no doubt about it. It was it was exciting sonically and musically so i was yeah. really lucky to get into a studio and learn from someone like terry brown um, yeah don't no, cool yeah so and then of course your your youthful exuberance carries you a long way in those days too right you just yeah kind of whatever i'll do whatever we'll, we'll do whatever has to be done that's it it's the sleeping bag on the couch thing and when when, every, <laughs> when everybody goes home you know you pull out a tape and you uh you know you, you mess around and you tweak and and you learn yeah. you learn the console and the machinery that's around it and I loved it. I loved every second of it and was lucky enough oh, to, to have a bit of a, you know, an ability there. So that w yeah. within a couple of years or a year and a half or so, I was, was then starting to engineer there and, uh, at yeah. Toronto sound and thrilled to be doing it, you know, got married, oh, had scary. a, had a baby and it was a real job, you know? And, uh, yeah. so, okay, okay. This looks like it could be a career for who knows long, but I'm, I'm, I'm dedicating myself to it and did and enjoyed it.
Yeah, no, that's good. It was mm-hmm. very impressive. And then, so I read earlier then that you had been an assistant cameraman for your father. Mm. Is that because because he was a? Did that get you into the technical side more of it as well? Mm, no, not not the audio. Um, my dad was a director of photography, and that phase actually before hair even that was uh, yeah. something that uh, he said, "Okay, David, I'm I'm doing a movie, and if if you want, you can come out with me and." Uh, be my assistant cameraman. I'll teach you how to uh, load a 35 millimeter movie camera in the dark, you know, in a, in a black oh, bag, wow. which, which I did. And he said, if you can do that, then uh, I'll teach you how to pull focus on a camera. And if you can do that, then, then um, yeah, I'll take you out. Oh, wow. I'll take you out with me. So I, I did that in the basement for a few weeks, got good at it. He said, okay. And uh, off I went uh, with him to, to be his assistant but um yeah that so, was just on a couple of a couple of gigs but yeah. they were it was different it was fun yeah and you were lugging big cameras at that time too i guess they right? were shoulder yeah. yep they were well very cool mm. and then and then the toronto hair thing struck mm. me as well i'm i'm from guelph but we moved out here many years ago but you, oh, yeah. you were based in the toronto area but but that run of hair was a pretty big deal back then right it went for a fairly long time and it was a pretty big production yeah i think just under two years yeah it was a big production and I love that. That well, as I said earlier, that's where I met Doug Riley. That was the biggest yeah. plus to, to that. But the the gig was fun. I mean, dealing with all of the, um, I was the the liaison between the cast and uh, the met the band and the management. Yeah. So um, it it was exciting. I got to see the show. Gosh, two hundred and fifty times probably. Well. <laughs> pretty much learned every line and sang along with every song. And yeah. it was a great company. It was very 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 t- very timely topic you know just uh yeah the whole thing the love and peace and and uh government intervention yeah. of sorts you know well it was it was sort of uh i don't know if you compare it to a broadway show but i guess it, it was, was. a canadian version of a broadway show it, right? it so absolutely it, it absolutely was and uh, rado and ragney the two writers of the play actually came about uh, th- three months into the production actually came to Toronto to the Royal Alex Theatre and saw one or two of the um, the performances and said, you know, this company is the best company that we have, you know, the best cast that we have. So we it was known to be, you know, just a terrific combination of the band and the cast and uh, and, and the present presentation of that show. So it was a Broadway oh, cool. it was a yeah. Broadway musical just yeah. done in the Toronto company. They had five or six different companies that toured all over the world, but right. the Toronto one was one of the earlier ones and Yeah, nice. Yeah, it was good. Oh, that's very cool. Mm-hmm. And and so so then back to Toronto Sound. So mm-hmm. you find yourself there and I and I like the the, the sleeping bag thing that's right. I mean <laughs> you're kind of married to the place if you're if you're gonna do their stuff there. But sure. what was some of the biggest project you worked on there? Oh boy, I guess probably the biggest would be uh, Stampeders, um, yeah. Sweet City Woman, that, that album. And, oh, you worked and, on, you worked on recording that? Oh, I did so. Yes, I did. I did, yeah. I did quite a few overdubs and I, um, did, uh, Wild Eyes. I, re- oh, nice. I recorded the, the tracks for that and, uh, and then helped Terry. He was the main, yeah. definitely the main engineer on that. But yeah. yeah, I did quite a bit of recording for that. And that was, that was fun. That was a, an excellent tune. I mean, even then, you know, often people say, did you know it was going to be, you know, a hit? And 
all of us did. It was just so darn catchy, you know, that tune. Absolutely great. Yeah, yeah. So I still listen to it today. My wife, it's on It's on her playlist. All, yeah. All half a dozen of those songs. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. No doubt. It's a good album. That one would yeah. uh, stands out, and, and Klaatu, that certainly stands out to me. That was uh, nice. something that I, that I got deeply involved with, and uh, yeah. with Terry again. But okay. uh, I, I would think those were the... the and and Doctor Music, yep. you know the two albums from Doctor Music, um, yep. they were monumental as far as I was concerned. Just great players, great tunes, great singers. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. And so, like you're you're breaking ground in a sense too, right? Because I guess looking back, the the music business in Canada and the recording industry and stuff that was all mm. kind of still shaping itself, was it not? Sure as heck was. I mean, when I started there at Toronto Sound, it was uh, an eight track machine, an eight track. Oh. Uh, Ampex, and within a couple of months, we had a 16-track machine, and then within a few months after that, we'd gotten a 24-track, I think the first 24-track machine in Toronto, and yeah. and everything was just exploding. The, the it went from, We had a lovely little uh, prototype console, a Cadac console, and then within a year or something, we had a lovely big Neve console, and, yeah. and all, nice. all the studios were like thriving at that point in time. There was so much music you know, going on. It yeah. was really healthy, a really yeah, healthy good. time for the recording studios and recording industry. Yeah. Yeah. And then England. So Neve, mm -hmm. those came from England. Is that right? Yep. That's exactly right. As did Terry Brown. And he was, in, oh, okay. he, he was involved seriously in, in a lot of the early pop scene, you know, recordings. Um, gosh, off the top of my head, um, yeah. the, the Trogs and Spencer Davis and uh, he, okay. some of the Beatles stuff, some of the earlier Beatles stuff and um, the animals. So he had come to yeah. Toronto with, with quite a, quite a healthy um, bio of, of who he was working yeah. with, with uh, current, you know, current artists. Yeah. Well, that's great for you because I mean, learning from mm. a guy like that, he's kind of been there, done that. Boy, right? I'll say, and doing it, you know, and and yeah. doing it. I mean, he did the the first few Rush albums, you know, which wow. uh, they're they're monumental. There's no doubt about it. And he's he's, he's yeah. still very very active and in demand today. And right. Oh wow. Rightfully so. I mean, he does. Oh, thanks excellent for thanks work. for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that because I, I I had no idea. You assume that guys fifty years ago sure. that these guys would be moved on. By yeah, now. it's true. Well, he's moved on, but he's still here. <laughs> wow. <laughs> then doing that's it. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's no, that's great. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so you say in there that you you felt just really really lucky to be mm. sort of where you were at the time, right? Yeah, just, it was all about that. It was being in the right spot at the right time, and like I said, meeting Doug Riley and saying, "Well, go go speak to my partner Terry Brown." And see what he's got and uh you know i just got lucky you know terry liked me i liked him and uh off we went you know well you, you obviously held up your end too because you learned and you did what you had to do you had the dedication and the, the some skill involved there too so it's good for you that you were able to do your end right well thanks but i mean i i, I couldn't have possibly failed watching terry brown and peter houston i mean they, they were the two of them that, that were just excellent, excellent engineers and great people. And, you know, had the whole, the, the whole method of, of creating a, a great space for, for people to come and, and record. And, uh, boy, they did, yeah. they did great work. And I was lucky to learn from them. There's no doubt about yeah. that. So, so then you were there till the mid seventies, right? How did you end up in Vancouver? Yeah, How that's right. Up... It would have been, um, 74, well, um, Jeff Turner, who was the, he built Little Mountain Sound. He technically put it all together. He was a great engineer. He came from New York and was hired by Griffiths Gibson, who at the time uh, owned Little Mountain Sound. And 
Okay. Jeff came out, um, built it, built them a, a, this big, beautiful studio complex. And uh, w once it was done, he realized, well, obviously that he needed, um, you know, he needed another engineer to help. He was an engineer as well. And he came down to Toronto with a few names uh, on his list that he wanted to interview. And I was one of them. He heard some of the work that I'd done. Then he interviewed me in Toronto and said, okay, um, if you like, um, we'd love you to come out, you know, for a week, come on out and see what Vancouver's all about. We'll give you a Jeep to ride around in and put you up in oh, a nice. hotel and give you, a, yeah. you know, a few bucks to buy food and stuff and see what you think of Vancouver and, and Little Mountain, the studio that, that he's just built. So out I came, loved it. I mean, absolutely loved Vancouver. <laughs> there was no rain while I was here, which was, which was, <laughs> which was a, a nice thing. And I realized, man, you can ski here. You can play tennis here. You can play golf here. You can, well, you know, sail here all year round, it seems. So yeah. And then the city was beautiful, the mountains. So, uh, and then the studio, you know, was, was very, very impressive. And Jeff, Jeff's whole plan for, um, how he saw the near future just was so exciting. And he said, okay, uh, so the two of us hit it off. And, you, and he said, okay, well, go on back and get your wife and get your baby and your dog and, and, uh, and your socks and come on out if, if we can do something. So I did. So, yeah, that was 74. Came out and uh, worked, worked, worked for and with him. And, um, yeah, that was the start of, of the Little Mountain thing for me. So you couldn't possibly have known how big that was going to get, though, right? Because, I mean, that became a world-class well, premier studio in, in the world yeah it did i mean uh, and and to be perfectly honest with you it it didn't develop as a surprise to me um we worked hard with with a with a with a vision that uh, you know that we succeeded at we worked very hard yeah. at, at making it uh, making it happen and, and teaching the uh you know the guys uh that came through there especially you know from in the mid to late 70s and early 80s you know teaching them what I had learned, you know, uh, yeah. from, from Terry and from my experience at that point in, in Toronto, which I was just so lucky to, as I've said, you know, to, to be involved in. Yeah. But um, no, uh, and, and at that point in time, you know, the financing was there and the vision was there to, to upgrade equipment as, as, you know, as we could. And we did, yeah. you know, we, we ended up getting great equipment. Um, Jeff did some wonderful work with the acoustic treatments of the place and, Nice. Uh, if things just fell into place and then, you know, guys like Bob Rock and, and, you know, Mike Fraser, um, they came, yeah. they came through there with good attitudes and good ears and, and, you know, they were able to, um, you know, grab onto the, the theories that we had and the approaches that we had and, uh, just ran with it at an even more exciting time, you know, when, uh, yeah. when all of that exploded with, uh, Bon Jovi and Loverboy and all of that. Uh, it was an exciting time, and um, it was, uh, yes, to, to answer your question, did we ever know that it would explode to that degree? Well, we hoped for that. We we, we really hoped that we were um, pursuing the right choices to make it a world-class studio. And, you know, as the, the, the years ticked by, it was clear that it's working, you know, yeah. and uh, yay, you know, we all we all enjoyed it in a big way, you know. Yeah, well, then, and, and you don't realize at the time, people like Bob Rock or, or Bruce Fairburn, you know, those are guys are mm -hmm. going to produce some serious albums. Right? Exactly right. I mean, the timing was perfect for them, you know. So and they did they did awesome work. And we were all doing really good work at that point in time. There's no question, you know. Yeah. And uh, 
it was it was fun. It was just yeah. a good time. So there's a famous story about the the drums being recorded in the back area. Oh yeah, in the loading bay. It? Sure, in the loading bay. Yeah. What was the deal with that? Well, uh, I, um, <laughs> I I suppose the 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 major focus of that was uh, with Bob Clear Mountain when he came out from New York and uh, and actually um, refined the loading bay. I know Ron Obvious and and even Bob and even myself. I mean, we had done miking of uh, various things in that room occasionally, you know, yeah. as was done by pretty much all the studios. I mean, it was not an uncommon thing to explore what rooms or what staircases yeah. that you had that might add some interesting ambience. Yeah. And, uh, and we did that. And, uh, you know, the drum, once we got uh, the SSL console, which had gates uh, on every channel, it was really a very cool thing to be able to, um, very finely tune uh, the amount of loading bay into uh, your original sound uh, with, right. without without sounding um, messy. I mean, perhaps could be the term. Um, well, yeah, you don't want to sound like you're in a cave, right? No, you can't control that. No, but the SSL could with with their uh, you know linked gates, uh, no, yeah. noise gates together, so you could get very nice control of it. And that that room nice. that room was was just a, a wonderfully excitable room for uh in specific for drums you know for snares and kicks and tom fills yeah. and stuff and yeah the, the the lads learned how to use that really successfully cool well there was a cd that i think it was bob clear mountain that put out of a bunch of samples he was one of the first guys that did that was some of that done at little mountain i should know that and i don't but i'd be uh surprised if it wasn't yeah because he was one of the early guys that had, you could buy a CD with Bob Clear Mountain samples on it and you could use them and they were excellent, like snare sounds and all the rest of it before, before pretty much anyone else was doing that. Yeah, very true. Um, uh, it's a very powerful thing that, uh, you know, the, the digital world allowed to happen with, with that. Um, I, I can honestly say um, I, I enjoyed the challenge of just trying to get my own sounds always in, in my entire career. You know, I never replaced, um, in any of the sounds that I had recorded with, with samples. Um, and it wasn't just my decision, the clients or the people that I worked with enjoyed the sounds that I got. And, and I found that much more, much more exciting to, you know, just to try and create my own version of stuff. But, um, as time has developed and gone on, I, I understand the power and the ease of, of putting a you know a patch cord into a into a sampler and 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 uh, of some sort and and you know uh, yeah. getting a sound, but uh, it's someone else's sound, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. You know, it's funny because uh, you know I've done some stuff where you do, everybody, almost everybody, sound replaces now. I would think. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, that, I think that's got a lot to do with why so many things sounds sound the same, but really good. Yeah. There's no question yeah. the sounds are brilliant and they're excellent, but there's yeah. not there's not the diversity that there used to be, you know, and there's there's not the challenge I don't think in in the engineering aspect either that there used to be. I mean, there's just so or the natural sounds. I mean, you listen to Steely Dan, you listen to yes. Supertramp. I mean, that, yes. that's natural sounds. Yes, right? exactly. They sound beautiful. Ex and they still sound beautiful today. Exactly. That, that's still my favorite yeah. stuff. Yeah. Exactly. 
Well, that's funny because we did an album one time and we did the sound, the guy did the sound replacer and the drums sounded great, but you know what? There was ghost notes missing. There was mm. the, the lighter hits don't mm. hit the same. Mm. Like the, the, It's not the same. It's definitely not the same. The human feel is not there, you know, yeah. and they're getting better at that. You know, I mean, you can, yeah. the electronic drums now, the, the pads that are played, still played with sticks. Uh, that, that whole technology has advanced really well. I mean, they, there's a lot of nuance available in them, which... You know, with yeah. with the earlier samples, it was you know uh, very very little nuance, and and I don't know, um, your your soul can feel that stuff when you're when you're listening to music, and uh, it just becomes a little bit too generic, perhaps, or it's a little easy, yeah. too, a little too easy for it to slide into that category, and that doesn't excite me. Yeah, no, no, fair enough. Well, good point. Thanks for making that because uh, I think some people now it seems to have reverted back. Some people just want to do the roots here. I talked to Ian Thomas. He said mm. that uh, you know they when they did the boom booms and stuff, they just recorded off the floor. They got good sounds and sure. everything, isolated it the best they could, and said, "Let's play, boys." Sure, that's, that, that that's that's music, isn't it? And that's yeah, that's and that's the whole uh, the whole fun of the event. I mean, is be for me anyway, is being in a room, you know, with five six guys, and and yeah. off off you go. Off if you go with the skills that you have and the instruments that you have and you make the best of uh, of everything that you can you know and that's exciting when all you know five or six guys are like boy i'm i'm, I'm really happy with how i played that i've been practicing yeah. it and i played it well and my equipment sounds good and you you know you've done a good job of capturing the sound isn't this fun and it's yeah. got to be it's it's got to be fun you know when it becomes laborious i don't know um not for me. <laughs> well, know. I think too, is that what happened, especially in the eighties, but even after the advent of the, the multi layers and all that, it becomes, you become more like a musical scientist almost, right? You're constructing this thing in the lab, mm -hmm. and hoping to come out with something rather than just playing music. Like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well, there, there's room there for both to intermingle, you know, there, there, mm -hmm. there is, yeah. but the, the heart of it, the core of it, the soul of it, I love it when it comes from from human fingers, you know, and from human uh, voices and, and human skills and human nuances. You know, it's uh, you can feel it, you can tell, and and it uh, yeah. it's just more satisfying to, to listen to, and certainly more satisfying to work on, in my opinion. You know, I'm I'm, yeah. I'm not well, into what boxes can spit out. Yeah, they can do it; they do it really well, but. Give me an instrument and some fingers on the other end of it and some, you know, some physical nuances that a player will feel and, and mm, I'm happy. It doesn't have to be well, perfection sonically. I 100% agree with that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, think, I think that's right. I think that's that's what the magic was in the first place. Mm -hmm. And still and is. Once you lose, still it is. still is. It's just, exactly. it's, it's a bit deeper to find. You have to search pretty far these days to, yeah. to, to you know, to uncover that. But it, it exists, but uh, nowhere near enough. And boy, listening to, listening to the popular stuff of the day is such a different experience now than, than it was. I mean, it's almost like you need to see you know, fireworks and light shows and, and booties, you know, in order, yeah. in order to get the whole feel of what somebody was trying to do and how satisfying is that musically? I'm not sure that it's as satisfying as what was created in the, you know, seventies and eighties. But like, yes, and I, I would add to that, that that doesn't make you a grumpy old man. Well, no, no other things do. <laughs> that, that's true. That's true. But it's, it's such a far, a far journey from uh, from what it was like in the seventies and eighties, and I, I suppose yeah. a little bit in in the nineties. But you know, 
um, yeah, if the kids are enjoying it these days, that's that's okay. But it's it's just not being supported in the same way. And I'm not, I'm kind of not surprised because the the majority of it is uh, of, of the music today I think is just more head scratching than you know than well, yeah. valuable. Yeah, I think that I mean you can create music now without even being a musician. Yeah, so that should tell you something. Isn't that true? And in your bedroom, and it's very very powerful. I love how powerful the you know the technology has become. You know, but uh, it, hmm, the, the human element is it needs to be the main, the main thing that you feel. I think you know the emotional content of how things are being delivered, and uh, it, it needs it needs the human touch, not not the machine touch. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, hundred percent agree. Mm-hmm. And so then you spent you were at uh, Little Mountain for thirteen years, right? And then you yeah. your time ran out there. What happened with that? Oh boy, what happened with that? Well. Um, my time ran out there. Not really that. It was, uh, I had quite a different, uh, yeah, it was uh, (laughs) the management at that time, the owner at that time. And I didn't see eye to eye on quite a few issues. Uh, It became much more about, we'll do whatever we can do to make money. um, Mm -hmm. And, um, or he'll do whatever he can do to make money. And, And a lot of the, the heart of and the team feel of, of what we had built for in 13 years was, you know, kind of the rug got pulled out on it and uh, okay. it, it became nowhere near as enjoyable for me. So I moved on. I was lucky enough to, to think that perhaps I could, uh, you know, continue to support myself as an independent in, engineer. Yeah. And I did for another, whatever it was, um, 40, no, 35 years. So. Mm-hmm. So you went, it says here, you went all over the place. So you went down to Texas and to New York and LA and overseas and stuff. Yep. For specific projects. I didn't go hunting for work. I was, um, yeah. you know, if we went to, uh, overseas to England, it was because the project that we were doing in, in Vancouver, you know, uh, well, in, in specific, we wanted the, uh, the, the England symphonic orchestra to play on a few tunes so and we we wanted to use trident which uh, studios in london which is known to create fabulous uh, sounds so we would go there in texas um when we went there to houston it was because um john panatucci and uh, a few of the other members of the band were based there and it made a lot more sense for the project to be um recorded there so we would go there um, Moscow um, was was a very very interesting one. I went there with um, Edgar Kaiser Jr. of the Kaiser Foundation and K- Kaiser Hospitals. He's uh, he's passed on now, but um, he his passion or well, one of the passionate things that he really wanted to do before he passed on was uh, record some of his music. And hmm. we did uh, we did a lot of it in in Vancouver, but uh, he wanted it to be released in his home in in Russia. And the only way that they, that uh, that that industry in that country would allow that would be if he had recorded some of the information of it in that country. So he said, "Okay, well, um, come on, David, you know, grab your radar and and Jimmy Woodyard." And he he and I um, went back to Moscow to a studio there to re- to record some uh, saxophone and some guitars and and get the stamp yeah. of approval from uh, the Russian uh, recording industry so that Edgar oh, could cool. could release it there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And what year would that have been? What year would that have been? Um, 90, 
I'm guessing we're trying to 98, maybe 97, okay. right in there somewhere. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So yeah, that's the other thing that struck me. Like, like some people think that maybe that you go into a studio and you record an album. But one thing I've learned in, in the course of this, and of course I knew anyways, that sometimes albums are recorded in several different studios, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Which is, uh, I guess there's various reasons for that. It must be mm -hmm. difficult from a, from an engineer's perspective, right? Yeah, it's uh, there, there's that word challenge pops up again. It's it it is challenging because I mean, so many studios have different you know different monitoring, different sounds, different consoles, yeah. you know. Uh, but the heart of it all is still you know is still how does the music sound you know and and how is it being presented from the player and that stays constant. You're always you know wanting to. Um, max max out the player and max out the sound so you, quite quickly you uh you learn to adapt or or you know if you are in a a new city with a new studio they always have assistants that are there working with you that know the place yeah, in, right. inside yeah. out so they they can help you over the speed bumps you know yeah um yeah but if you're the chief engineer you're the guy that has to glue it all together in the end right that's you have to right bring it all you know. yep that's true that's true and that can be it can be challenging but at the same point in time i'd much rather be involved in a different studio recording you know aspects of it than have um the, the engineer at that studio do it and send it to me because at least it's it's my work you know whether whether yeah. it's uh, as good as what i can do in another studio or not uh, that that's a relative question, but, right. um, you know, but, but I'd much rather go do it myself and then bring it back to the room that I'm accustomed to. And, uh, if there's surprises, yeah. okay, I know how to, uh, you know, compensate for it or handle it. But when it's someone else's yeah. work, it may be, you know, a very different approach that is just uncomfortable. Well, that's, a, that's what I was going to ask you too. Like, like sometimes you have a producer overseeing you, right? Kind of over your shoulder if you're engineering and if you're producing, you get to make some calls that, that mm -hmm. you might not be able to make, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, so if, if you're basically engineering, you know, he tells you to turn the bass up, you, the bass is up then, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's true. That's true. And, uh, on that point, <clears throat> I consider myself pretty darn lucky that, uh, there's there's never really only maybe a, a small handful of times where the producer and I have differed in opinion, okay. you know, as to, okay, how's that working? And I think a lot of that, uh, that reasoning comes from um, being involved in the basic track and in the basic recording birth of, of a song um, with the producer and with the artist that um, you're all, collectively feeling and, and, and going for, um, you, you know, a, a very similar, if not identical, hopefully result, you know, mm -hmm. where emotionally, yes, this is all fitting. Yes. This is how, you know, we hear it. This is how we, uh, we feel it. And you, when you get the, you know, the nod from the artist going, yes, this is what's been in my head for a few years and, and it's working then there's yeah. no real surprises at the, uh, in the final aspect of it when you're putting the mix together and, uh, you know, there's no, right. no shocks different from recording, um, you know, uh, 80 tracks, a hundred tracks, and then sorting it out in the mix that there, there's a, a focus there that's, that doesn't really happen in the same way. And I, I much prefer to, you know, to, to, be in alignment with what the focus is early on and make the decisions, you know, as the process moves forward. And it just, uh, yeah. just seems to make things so much more cohesive sonically and, and emotionally, I think.
Well, that's a good point though, because then you don't have to have a big philosophical discussion near the end of the mix about what you're actually looking for. <laughs> exactly. Like <laughs> why, why leave it to the end? No, it, it's much more yeah. fun to, to feel, feel that the, the, the tune being built and being, yeah. you know, be, ha hearing the components successfully joined together to emote that feeling that the artist says, yes, yes, that's how I feel it. That's how I, how I want it to be. And that, that's very satisfying. Yeah, because a friend of mine, they got a big record deal out of Vancouver and they spent a pile of money and they got a producer in LA and stuff. And then the, the record company heard the final mix and they didn't like it. And they sent mm. it back down to a different studio and spent tens of thousands of dollars to have mm. this remixed mm -hmm. and get it back. So you've had situations like that happen. I mean, everybody's had those sort of times, I suppose. I've been lucky there. I, I've yeah. been lucky there. I haven't, uh, haven't had that experience, but I know, I know it happens. Yeah. And then some other guys don't like the mastering guys, right? Because mm -hmm. people sometimes don't realize mm -hmm. that everything that's produced is mastered finally. Mm -hmm. And the mastering guys can change your sound, right? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And that, uh, yeah, that, that more often than, than not in my career has been, has been a bit of an issue um, yeah. where I haven't been able to be involved in the mastering process because of location and, and timing and whatever. Um, uh, yeah, sometimes it's gone awry a bit or just been a little soft or just, you know, not quite sparkled the way that, um, that I thought or that I knew that yeah. we had. So yeah, that, that, that's a been a, a bit of a difficult one to, to, Have you ever uh, sent stuff back and had it remastered or when, sent it to somebody else? Yes. When it was possible and it, never, well, actually, I don't think we've ever sent it or I've ever sent it to anyone else as much as I would have wanted to, but the logistics yeah. of it frequently didn't allow that. But to, uh, you know, to get a test, a, a test mastering, a test lacquer. Um, yes, that, that did happen quite frequently not quite, not frequently enough though, but, uh, yeah. to say, okay, good. You know, it, it's very, very close. Could you just, you know, dial this in a little bit tighter or, or a little bit wider, whatever the story was. And, you know, normally but by the second shot, if you're working with, professional mastering engineers which which i was lucky enough to then you know we we would get it close but there were there certainly were projects where that wasn't available and, and it became a, a mastering engineer's interpretation and it was a little dis disappointing in the end but yeah well that's what happens like i've i've sat with them at times so then you can make the decisions as you go right i don't know if you you would have had the opportunity to do that i'm sure at times and other times you send it away and you get it back like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you don't know what you're getting back yep that's true that's true but even even still even if you are sitting there you're sitting in a in a room that you you know you don't really know yep. you know so you you do need to trust a good amount the the, the man that's behind that console twisting those knobs for you yeah you know, um, yeah, it, it, I, I, every phase of it is, is important, you know, is very important. And to have full control of the entire process all the way through is a luxury, but it pays off, you know, or it can pay off if uh, everyone's done, done their job. So how much did you do producing as opposed to engineering? Did you do both? Did you wear both hats quite um, often? Uh, quite often, um, much, much more so engineering, but there was a few projects that I was, uh, produced and co-produced and yeah. but even as a as an engineer um i was i always had uh you know my opinions my my thoughts about uh yeah. about perhaps well, what about this what about that and i was lucky enough to you know to work with people that were open to suggestions so um 
you know, a lot, a lot of the ideas that I would have would be given for, you know, given for free and just given for the process. Yeah. And it, you know, whatever the hat was that it didn't need to say producer or co-producer or anything. It just, you yeah. know, it just flowed out because everybody's wanting to make the, the project as, you know, as good as possible. So you, you shared your ideas and if they, you know, if others liked it, fantastic. If not, that's fine too. Well, no, a good point, because if somebody's in there and they're immersed in the project and you're hunched over the console, I, w I want to hear what you have to say. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Yeah, I want to hear. Her. Sure. So. Exactly. Well, and why not? You know, and it doesn't exactly. need, doesn't need to be taken, but, uh, offered is fine. And yeah. so, yeah, I, I, just about every project that I, you know, was involved in, I was free to, um, offer my opinions and, and nice. frequently they were taken and that's a good thing. Yeah. So then it says here too, you went to Inside Track Studio and then Pinewood Studios as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I looked up, where is Inside Track Studio? Was Inside, that in um, it was, yeah. And it's called Creation, Creation Studios now. It's, um, okay. it's in, um, I suppose that's just right on the border of New Westminster and Burnaby. Um, okay. uh, a, a nice little studio, you know, good, a, a good little console for sure. Yeah. Um, Jim Woodyard is still working out of there. I know he's still doing, nice. doing good work. Um, yeah. but, but yeah, I, I met, um, Rick Picard at that point in time, he was the studio owner and it was called inside track then. And he and I hit it off and it, it was at, at a time where, um, I wasn't working with another studio uh, and I was independent and he offered me, you know, um, a position there to, to help oh, him good. out and stuff. So I did, and I really enjoyed him and Gary Toll, who was, my assistant or the assistant and my assistant there, I mean, he has gone on to work in New York and he's doing big things, wonderful things. So the three of us basically, um, yeah, we worked together for two years there doing, nice. doing albums and enjoying ourselves. Yeah. And you brought a lot to the table for them. So that would, yeah. Be yeah. And that, that was good. And it, it helped them. Yeah. And, you know, we did quite a few good things there, uh, quite a few nice. nice projects, Paul Jans and, um, Kickaxe and, um, oh, neat. Um, Connie Scott and yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, I didn't realize Paul Jans recorded there. Cause he, this would have been nineties, right? Or um, this would have been mid nineties. Yep. This definitely would have been in that slot. Yep. Paul did, did work quite in quite a few places, but we did a lot of work with him on, on, uh, yeah. on electricity and, um, renegade romantic, those two albums. Nice. And, uh, yeah, uh, what a, what a fantastic, there's an example of, of, of somebody who should have really, really been, you know, influential in a big way globally. Yeah. I think, you know, such a great talent, such a great musical talent. Yeah. And, um, that, that just, uh, didn't really go the way that it, it should have, as far as I could see. Well, down. I talked to, uh, I talked to Michael Godin. I, I mm. interviewed him for my podcast. I just a little while ago, he was Paul's manager. And yes. I guess, um, Paul got kind of caught up in the music business and then he ended up went to uh, studied theology and became a theology professor. I think he kind of got uh, disheartened, you know, because he'd, he'd yeah. made an awful lot of great music, you know, in, yeah. with, within a few years and, uh, it never really seemed to take off for him. And I think he said, okay, yeah. well, I've spent an awful lot of effort here, still love it, but I'm, I'm moving on. And he did. Yeah. But, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. And you got to work with lots of, like, you worked with Susan Jacks, I see. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I did. Um, on the dreams album. Nice. I wish her well, everybody give her a little prayer. She's fighting hard. Um, yeah, to, I, to, I, yeah. 
Yeah, she's a lovely lady and, you know, beautiful voice, my goodness. So, so good. Yes, I mean, I listened yes. to the old albums because I, I interviewed her because I've known Susan for a number of years. Uh, okay. I interviewed her, and so I, I went through her catalog, and you listen to her oh, voice. It's so oh. rich, and her tone and control oh, is excellent. Absolutely, absolutely. Beautiful tone. Yeah. And a, and a great gal. Yeah, and she's she's struggling again with the with the kidneys, right? Yeah. So um, yeah. I think she's she's having a bit of a tough time. But yes, I uh, my heart goes out to her too. I, I send her a message every once in a while. So uh, wish her the best. Me too. Yeah, I, I do the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you got to work with uh, with Baldy and the hometown band and Bim and those guys. Did you? Yeah, those were those were great great years for me and and for Little yeah. Mountain Sound. And it was it was it was fun because um, I was. Uh, I was a father at that time with two kids and, yep. and had been, uh, well, when I traveled around a little bit, had been offered uh, a couple of positions in different cities and had decided, you know, Vancouver is such a wonderful place. And I, I do not like the air here in Vancouver. I mean, the pollute or in uh, Los Angeles or, yep. or New York when I'd been there. So um, it was uh, I, I, and, and the the, the uh, opportunities that were there for me, recording wise, with the hometown band and Bim and um, folks, were were really really nice people. You know, good music, pleasant music, and studio Studio A was taking off, and, and at that time working with Loverboy and Bob Rock and um, and Mike Fraser. So I was in Studio B, um, working away with the likes of you know um, the hometown band and. Um, and Bim and boy, Bim, so great, yeah. what a, what a fantastic talent he is. I mean, he, he's, um, he's a highlight in my mind of, of being, oh, being impressed with just how musical the guy is. Yeah. And yeah. Roy Forbes, he goes by Roy, Roy Forbes. Forbes that's right. He, yeah. he did then he came out of the Bim thing too, but yeah, but yeah. And, uh, Oh, hometown band. There's a, a, a thought there when we were mixing, um, fear of flying, George Martin of the Beatles um, was in Vancouver thinking about possibly opening up a studio in Vancouver at that time. Oh, and, and yeah. And um, Jeannie, who was the um, uh, booking manager for little mountain sound at that point in time said, okay, we've, I've just gotten a call. George Martin is going to be coming by today to see the studio. <laughs> and, and there we are working, you know, working on fear of flying, re- refining the mix. And we thought, okay, well, yeah. fantastic. If he wants to come in, of course he's welcome to. Yeah. Um, so we're, you know, we're uh, working on the mix of fear of flying, gotten it probably three quarters of the way to uh, finalizing and the door opens and in comes George Martin, you know, six foot six in his light, wow. light gray suit, and his blue shirt. And, just, just so, uh, so dapper and so excited. He said, "Oh, gentlemen, gentlemen, please, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't be distracted by me. I'd just love to come and just stand behind you there and just have a listen to what you're doing." And oh, okay, yeah. well, we're just working on this mix. We've almost, almost got it. We'll just play it for you. So, push the button, push play, and uh, on came Fear of Flying, and we were working our moves out for him. And as the tune faded out, he, we heard George Martin's voice low and just most most impressive gentleman so (laughs) that was yeah so that was that was quite a moment for all of us that he had heard this tune and was very impressed and he he ended up deciding okay no vancouver's got stuff going on you know with mushroom and and uh and ocean sound and little mountain sound so he he didn't build here he built in montserrat at that point in time that that was a highlight for all of us to had to play that song for george martin yeah 
Yeah. And then Sherry Elric was singing Fear of Flying. Was she there? She was. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. She, she was, was there. there. Oh, yes. She okay. was there. She tells that story as well. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, well, that, that's fantastic. I mean, that's, that's, that's the big time when you get the Beatles <laughs> producer walking into your studio and, uh, and enjoying what he's hearing. Uh, that was yeah. quite a nice stamp of approval. <laughs> but also the point you made about, you know, all the things going on. I mean, like in Vancouver, you know, I was kind of proud to be from Vancouver. There's so much yes. cool music coming yes. out of Prism and, and yes. Headpins was just coming out. Loverboy. I mean, Loverboy was fantastic. I'm still absolutely a huge me fan. too. Me too. Me too. They're an excellent band and deserve every bit of you know recognition that they've earned. I, I think so. Yeah, yeah I do I'm, too. I'm totally, totally for sure. And did you work? Did you work on Turn It Loud? Were you in the Headpins album? Oh yeah, you? I did their first yeah. two albums, recorded them and mixed them. Yeah, oh. absolutely. That's that's my work. And and then with Chilliwack, just after that, with the Opus Ten album. Okay. Um, which they won uh, Producers of the Year for. They won a Juno for that, which was yeah. which was big. So Brian was producing the Headpins, and then Brian and and uh, Bill mm-hmm. and Bill produced the. Chilliwack album? That's right. Yep. Yep. The Opus 10 album. Yep. Great talents, both of those guys. Holy smokes. I mean, Brian is is very much musically missed in this city. There's no doubt about that, you know. Well, at 39 too, right? Gosh, I know. I mean, you look back and you think like those years, I mean, that's so, so young now from looking back from our perspective. I think you're probably a bit older than me, but, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, we're getting up there. (laughs) Yep. Yep. No doubt. Yeah. He went left way too early. Yeah. Way too soon. Big loss. So how were you involved? So Trooper was coming up and BTO was pretty active and Nick Gilder, were you involved mm-hmm. in all that stuff? Were you around? Yep, yep, yep. I mixed, um, did some overdubs and mixed Roxy Roller for Nick. Nice. And that, that ended up going quite well. Um, Trooper, we I did a, an album with them, Real Canadians, or I oh, think the album Real was Canadians. just called. Yeah. yeah, that tune I think came from the album, Trooper. Yeah. But yeah, so looking down the list, man, it was just so mm. fantastic. Like all the stuff that, uh, that you were able to be part of and through the exciting times for you to arrive in Vancouver in the mid seventies and then mm-hmm. work in this industry for the next 15 years was that, I mean, that's the golden age of Vancouver music, I'd say. Yeah. Well, darn near the next 30 years, <laughs> you know, really in, 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 in this, uh, in this city. Yeah. 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 I've been, I've been fortunate and, you know, I was able to, um, bring up my family well, you know, my girls and, and and I kind of, uh, was, was lucky enough to be able to say, okay, um, you know, how about, uh, how about we do 10 to six, you know, or, or, or or whatever, and, uh, just work hard during the day and go home at night and be involved in, you know, sports and coaching with my girls and, um, and, and being there for them at, uh, at bedtime, you know, which was really important to me. I didn't want to, uh, slide into the, you, you know, into the big stream where you don't start working until, you know, two, three o'clock in the, in the afternoon and you work until yeah. one or two o'clock in the morning. That wasn't for me. So I, well, I, I yeah. kind of kept myself out of that. You I appreciate know. you saying that because, uh, you know, you, you have a life as they say, right? Absolutely. You know? And I, I read David Foster's book and he was, he was just completely focused on work consumed i know i know and he was daisy chaining project he said he would have a project that would be a long one and then he'd have the next one lined up and he'd have two more ready to go after that yeah yeah good for him but that wouldn't have been my choice you know i i I enjoyed my life and enjoyed working hard when i worked but uh and i was lucky enough like i said to have projects that uh 
uh, you know, uh, they understood that. And some of them were, were mums and dads as well. And, and, yep. uh, you know, we, we just worked in the prime time of the day and, you know, uh, and, well, and had our, had our lives as well in the evening and weekends. Yeah. Good for you. I, I appreciate you saying that. And, and then of course people don't realize sometimes it's not all album projects. I mean, you did oh, lots boy. of jingles and lots of other stuff. Absolutely. Right? TV commercials, radio commercials. Absolutely. When I first came out here from Toronto to to, to Little Mountain, the the uh, jingle industry was just huge. Griffiths Gibson were just pumping away. I mean, often we would do two two full jingles a day, you know, and that's with all all players. Sometimes thirty string players out there in a wow. rhythm section, and you know, yeah. and, and within uh, you know five or six hours, we'd have two or three jingles done, and all different styles of music. So it was really, really a, a good time to get chops together for all kinds of genres of of yeah. sounds and of music. And uh, yeah, that was that was an extremely for all of us. I mean, I know um, Rock did uh, did a bunch of jingles, and as did Mike Fraser, and yeah. just having that variety. Um, of uh, of of music and how to how to handle it, how to how to record it properly or for well at least, yeah, and uh, you know valuable, really valuable. And then well, yeah. off we would all go into the, you know, into the pop scenes and the rock scenes yeah. and whatever. But but they pay the rent, right? Because they're, they're quick yeah. and easy, and you do them, and yeah, you get your paycheck, and you're good. Yeah, exactly. And they allow you to buy more gear and good yeah. gear, and and <laughs> and that that's for sure what happened to Little Mountain in the earlier days. It was through you know the jingle companies that yeah. you know uh, made the money for us to be able to buy an Eve and 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 Studer machines. Nice. Yeah. So yeah. you did the A and W root bear commercial. <laughs> is that you did yeah. the tuba commercial? Boom, boom, yeah, boom, boom. That was yeah, that was that was. It wasn't me. I recorded it and mixed yeah, it. Recorded, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was great fun. I can remember um, Sharman King. He he's a yeah. trombone player and a tuba player, and I can remember him playing that. Um, we we put him in the uh, isolation room, which is just to the right of the of the control room, and just seeing his cheeks just. Yeah puff out like dizzy gillespie <laughs> playing playing this huge huge tuba playing those parts and boom 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 yeah boom 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 boom, boom. That's <laughs> yeah. funny it was it was great and yeah and I, I hear that even now and i just smile oh. it was a, it just such a catchy little little oh, it's unreal man it was, it was everywhere and then he had the commercials because he had a bookstore or something too right? that's right yeah that's right that's right in vancouver yeah, yeah. so he would play that i know in his store like four, you yeah. know every three or four hours he would put it on <laughs> <laughs> <That's so good. laughs> you know why not yeah i know I no but that was huge that was worldwide i mean that everybody it was with an a&w root bear because i know the bear walking along right yeah yeah it was a very fun jingle to do yeah no that's very cool well then and then you did the lot of mm -hmm. 649 theme too it says yes yes I, and that i so enjoyed that one with Henri lorio he um yeah. i think i think we did that at uh pinewood yeah we did and that okay. was at pinewood studios and yeah that um yeah, that's quite a piece of a real dynamic piece. Ba ba da ba ba da da ba do do ba do da da. Yep. Well, that's um, neat. Mm hmm. Like yeah. You said you smile when you hear them, right? You're going, yeah. You were kind of in in the room when they uh, when that yeah. happened, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, not then, not that not that that's yeah. of the status of you know Bon Jovi or whatever, but I mean they were yeah, cool. they were enjoyable and yeah. really enjoyable sessions. Well, no, the, the, hmm. the jingles thing is a big deal. And I guess that, that was your connection with Howie Vickers, right? Howie Vickberg. Yeah. He had a jingle company too, right? Did you work with him? 
Absolutely, a lot. He was uh, he sang a lot of the uh, commercials for Griffiths Gibson. Yep, yep, he did, and his own company, and a, and a um, Supreme Kid. I remember uh, uh, that uh, movie, a local local movie, I think it was. But he sang all the music tracks in that. Very, very excellent, really. Just a yeah. great vocalist and a great from the guy. collectors. I did I did from get to collectors. interview him and and talk yeah. to him and. And that's how he made a living after the collectors after, because he left really when the band was successful, right? Yes, I know. I know. That's quite true. Yeah. He, he's sang on, singing on an awful lot of commercials that we heard through the, you know, through the seventies, eighties and nineties. Yeah. For that's sure. He made cool. a, made a good living at it. Yeah. And then I, you, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Nope. Go ahead. I was going to say, then you, you mixed obviously TV shows too. Like, like the, the engineering mm. business is pretty broad, right? I mean, you can do lots of different things. So you were mm-hmm. involved in some TV series and some movies and mixing for them too. Yep. Yep. Which was very, very fun. Very exciting. And, and not only mixing them, but, you know, working on uh, the Foley, you know, all of the sound effects, the, yes, the, the, the human made sound effects. Yep. And ADR, you know, bringing in, um, you know, the likes of Johnny Depp and whomever for, uh, 21 jump street and him having to redo lines for it. So, you know, uh, yeah. um, yeah, it was, it was good as well as mixing, mi- mixing the, the dialogue and the music for, yeah. for quite a few series and a few, few movies that did well. So let me ask you, I've always been curious about this. Like when you watch a major movie, like every mm-hmm. line in that movie is pretty much replaced, right? Like mm-hmm. the, the actor comes in after and redoes it cause he, you could never get the audio right yep. when you're recording it. Right. Well, but, it happens an awful lot, put it that way, yeah. Yeah, an awful lot. And it's necessary yeah, because of, because of all the noise that's around there, yeah. you know? Yep. So, but they don't do that for TV shows. They, they don't do that. They wouldn't have the budget to do that, right? Yeah, they do. No, sure yeah. they do. Yeah. Um, like I was saying, 21 Jump Street, when that was popular, I mean, at, at Pinewood, probably a full day during the week or like eight or nine hours would be spent on uh, dialogue replacement with, you know, Holly, uh, what was her last name? Can't recall. Um, but Johnny Depp and, and yeah. the likes of them would be in there redoing lines because wow. for the same exact reasons, you know, the, the audio just wasn't clear enough yeah. on set when they were filming it. Uh, so yeah, there'd be an awful lot of dialogue replacement done. Yeah. That's quite a lab- laborious process, right? Cause you're going through. Um, can be, it, it, it can be, um, if, if the actor is, uh, which they certainly were the ones that we worked with, um, um, tuned into the, their original performance. Um, then the, the technical end of it is pretty much together quite quickly. I mean, yeah. there's, there's beeps, you know, you, you, you get, you get cued as to when to start your line and they get to see, they get to see their lips flashing, right. They get to see on yeah. the screen how it, how it looked with the original, um, audio and they match up to it. I, I can't, I can't honestly say that it was a laborious process. It was quite, quite efficient, really. Okay. Surprisingly okay. efficient. Yeah. 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 As long as they know. Yeah. So they can see their lips and they, they're just repeating their own line in their own That's voice. right. That's right. To, to their lips. And you would play them, you know, three or four times you would play them the original, um, you know, with the inferior audio, the original version of how they, how they inflected it, how they said they would get the rhythm of how they said it and uh, they, they would see themselves saying it. So they say, okay, I'm ready to give it a try and beep, 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 go. And um, yeah. um, seldom, seldom was there tantrums. Mind you, there was a few times where, where, um, where there would be a persnickety 
day for a certain actor coming in and saying, no, 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 that's good enough. You're going to have to work with it. I was in, I was in the moment then that's perfect. <laughs> you know, you know, you, you figure out, you know, how to, how to live with that audio because I'll, I'm not going to be able to capture that emotion again, yeah. you know? Um, and that did happen occasionally, <laughs> Yeah. you know? So, um, but with all the noise and the, the boom mic and stuff, you're never going to fix that to the, where you need it, right? To where you need it, right. I mean, and so, you know, the compromise would be, okay, well, do as good as we can. And if somebody says, gee, I didn't hear that line, did you? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, uh, we tried, you know. Well, or, there, you know, dig it out as best as you can, or just things just get very noisy at the moment. and Yeah. And, and that's as good as it's going to be. Yeah. But that's but, another side of the business people don't always realize, right? True. Very true. Very true. But it's a fun one. You know, Foley is fun to do, you know, very yeah. fun, you know, mimicking all of the background sounds that are there that weren't able to be captured well enough in the, you know, the, the initial filming. Did, did we have a Foley studio in Vancouver? Oh boy. It? Pinewood was a beautiful one. Had a beautiful okay. one. Oh Yeah. Very, very nice. Very full. You know, lots of different uh, surfaces for walking on and loads of, I'd say, junk. But, I mean, just ma materials that could yeah. make all these different sounds. And we had a couple of excellent Foley artists here that were really good at, uh, okay. at at using whatever, you know, whatever materials they needed to to mimic the sound that was seen on screen but not heard, you know. So it's mostly samples now, right? Is it? It, I should be able to answer that. I I know there's still Foley artists out there working, so I'm not sure how much is done by samples. Probably a heck of a lot more. You're right than than uh, than in the '80s and '90s. Um, so yeah, probably it is. A lot of it is probably just injected in. But again, there you go. You've got perhaps a sameness, you know, yeah. quotient going on, which maybe that's okay for that business because sound doesn't really get an awful lot of. Uh, attention in in the tv or or music business or uh, film business yeah not not like the uh the, you know the, the visuals do yeah oh, cool well that's mm -hmm. interesting and then and then i wanted to ask you about rock beach studios because you were involved mm. in like in white rock because i'm very familiar with that because i've performed at, at um, blue frog it's called now uh, yeah it is yeah so you um, you started that with uh with your partner was it yeah, Doug Johnson, oh, my partner, but not not the Doug Johnson of uh, of Loverboy. No, no, I don't. Uh, I know Doug Johnson because I, I actually our band played at his wedding. Oh yes, I remember. Ago. I remember you had mentioned that, or I'd read that somewhere. Yeah, yeah. so um, so he had the the desire and the money to uh, yeah. to build that place, and his family had owned that uh, that building and that location, and he and I had met, and he said, uh, "Okay, well." Um, David, if you think you can put this together and build it, um, I've got the bucks and the desire to do it. Let's go. And so I designed it and, um, and we tore the, it was a Greek restaurant at that point in time. Oh, we wow. just, just no gut, yeah, we gutted that building right down to, you know, right down to the outside walls and put in, um, earthquake beams and stuff, earthquake proof oh, beams wow. and, and, uh, and just did everything that you see now that's yeah. in there. Uh, we, we built the place and, um, it was a dream come true for me. It was, uh, you know, a, a very major time for me, um, yeah. and a really, really enjoyable time, but, uh, it's 208, you know, 2008 hit, you know, with the, uh, the big the economic shutdown, yep. economic shutdown. Yeah. And, and Doug was advised at that point in time by his advisors to, you know, to, to move on because the industry wasn't uh, supporting, you know, uh, 
well enough. You know, the music yeah. industry wasn't recording studios. So he, he took their advice at that point in time and uh, got out of it. And so, uh, you know, it got sold to uh, Kelly and to Juanita and they're, yeah. they, they've continued on really well with the vision that we were, we were working towards a, just exactly what they're doing now, you know, with live performances and show showcases. And we had um, uh, Bravo TV very much interested, you know, as as Rock Beach. And uh, Kelly and Juanita have taken that and run with it and are doing really well, you know. With, yeah, with I've, I've done a number of bunch of shows there. But uh, the interesting mm-hmm. thing about that, that, that struck me with that, is that you built it more it's a audio studio but it's also a visual because you got the rock in there you had the nice it's a beautiful yep. looking place too thank you i picked every piece oh, did you okay well let's absolutely it is a beautiful facility yeah well, were you planning on live that. shows is that what oh, oh absolutely that okay. was never oh yes i mean the 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 approach was to you know to be able to do an austin city limits type right. type thing and uh at the at the point in time that we had it open we had all just the absolute best gear that you can possibly put together in the control room for full-blown album recording as well or yeah. or live performance so yeah that, that's uh that was the vision the initial vision was oh, um, very cool was amalgamating both of those things you know and, yeah and uh it, it's it's worked out. It, it's absolutely worked out. I know that they're doing a lot more streaming now and and uh, live live performances than than uh, actual recording, you know, album projects. But such is the business, you know. Yes, I think that's right. And and of course, your timing, like you said, if you started in two thousand four, within just a few years, and then the economic mm-hmm. issues, mm-hmm. and then the, of course the big studio budgets and stuff. I mean, there's very yeah. few record companies giving out hundred thousand dollar advances to record albums. And stuff. Yeah, 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 for sure. Which was why you know the original vision of it being uh, also a place to showcase, you know, and and to film, you know, um, was was there. I mean, it wasn't just built as a recording studio. It was. It was built for showcasing and and possibly streaming as what's gone on. Yeah. And uh, so we were hoping back then, even, you know, in 2007, <laughs> yeah. that, that it would sustain itself in that way and that the support would be there from, from the owner and, but Doug's doing okay. He's uh, he's moved on to other things and, and, mm-hmm. and Kelly yeah. and Anita are doing fine too. So it's, it all worked out. Yep, it has, and the and the place is doing what it was built to do, yeah. which is which is what I'm I'm thrilled about. There's still music coming through those walls, you know. Yeah, did you record any major albums there, or did you have you have the time to to do anything there? Well, we did the first Headley album. That was oh, that you? was that was done there. Oh, okay. um, yeah, and uh, um, 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 Richie Shalanda. No, not Richie Shalanda. Um, Zane er- Eric Solomon did a did an album there with us, mm-hmm. with me, and um, yeah, those would be the, the really the, the, the probably the two albums that uh, that yeah. did well. I think home recording is pretty much gutted uh, the, the most of the studios because there used to like when you said before about the major studios in Vancouver, Mushroom and and uh, Little Mountain and Ocean and stuff. There, underneath mm-hmm. that, there was dozens of other mm-hmm. mid level decent studios right yes yes turning out good stuff too yeah yeah but that's all a lot of that's gone by the by now i think it has yeah it's uh it's bedroom stuff and you know (laughs) little home studios which is fine i understand it the the digital world has made all of that very very possible and affordable 
Yeah. You know, so I don't don't blame any musician for doing, you know, putting together a little studio in their home. Yeah. Much more cost efficient, you know, and Well, powerful. that's what I did. I spent I spent 20 grand recording an album, which I thought was pretty good. I did it on a tight budget. And then after that, I thought, well, I could buy a, almost all this stuff for 20 Exactly, grand. <laughs> exactly. And learn how to use it yourself yeah. and have no time restraints. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all very possible now. But in the old days, no, you couldn't do that. You no. couldn't be... You know, you uh, a multi-track machine and an Eve console took up a, quite a lot of space. Yeah, absolutely. You know? <laughs> well, and then they started selling the strips, right? You could buy a Neve strip. Yeah, yeah. You'd take the board apart yeah. and sell each strip. Yeah, exactly. And for good reason, you know, the, it's good sounding stuff. Nowadays, you know, you can pop it up on a, on an app and there you go. You yeah. know, and they, they approximate pretty closely. Yeah. Yeah. Have you, are, yeah. You, are you still active now? Do you do anything now? Um, I, I, no, not really. I am helping out uh, Sean Garrett at the moment with his, uh, with his project just, uh, as an advisory thing. And I'm just helping him put some mixes together, yeah. but, but no, I've, I've had my time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, uh, no, I'm, I'm enjoying just, life just as it is now, you know, and staying on the West coast and, uh, yeah. Good yeah. For you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, you were saying the other, when we were talking the other day about how many of your friends have passed away and how many people are gone. Oh now boy. How tough that is. Yeah. Yeah. This is, uh, it's not, not fun. It's not that part of it in life is, is not fun, but it's something that we all need to be very aware of and, and love each other all the more because who know who knows, you know, what, what tomorrow's going to bring. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, absolutely. for, you know, for age, age reasons and for, yeah. Uh, you know, ecological reasons. It's, it's times are pretty pretty stressed, and we're all getting old. And yeah, it's getting up there. Well, I talked to Peter Legg one time, and he wrote the book The Runway of Life. And okay. The, the reason you wrote that book is because every, everyone always says life is a highway. He said it's not a highway; it's a runway. Yeah, an end yeah. To it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. And you'd, you'd better be elevated by the end of it or, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Very true. Pretty interesting <laughs> thing. So I always ask my guests, you know, as we wrap here, um, looking back on your career and stuff, is there anything that you would change? Is there any decisions that you made that you, that you kind of regretted or anything you would have done differently if you could do it over again? Mm, that's a good question. Um, anything I've regretted? You probably, yeah, probably I, I wish, no, not probably. I do wish that I would have kept up my drumming focus, hmm. you know, because, because that, that kind of, uh, when I did get into the studio business with, with Toronto sound and mm, whatever that was, 69, I was very much thinking about learning, uh, how to utilize a studio for my own music with, uh, with my musical mates so that I could, um, you know, uh, learn how to record and, and make some good music as a drummer with, uh, with my bandmates. And, um, boy, before, before I knew it, I was engineering other people's projects, enjoying it so much, making money at it, you know, getting married, having, having a kid, having very, you know, uh, quite a secure, um, looking future and realizing, okay, well, this is, this is still something that I really, really love. And, uh, I let, yeah, I let, I let the drumming aspect of it slide, yeah. slide a little far. So I do regret that, um, more often than not. Yeah. Um, I re also regret, I suppose, not taking better care of my ears. Hmm. Um, I think, um, the bombardment of, of Sonic, well, being a drummer for starters, it's <laughs> a pretty, pretty noisy place to sit behind a kit and play. 
Um, yeah. But then, you know, going through the through the rock and roll era of, of the 70s and 80s and, and, you know, volumes being a little exorbitant and a little oh, yeah. too loud, you know, it, it t- yeah. t- took its toll. There's no question. Yeah. So I, I wish I had been a bit more careful there. Uh, but other than that, oh, and I suppose the third thing is um, when you're when you're working with in the older days, especially when you're working with it with a group and or a bunch of musicians on an album, you're together in the same room, you know, basically for back then, you know, four or five months was not unheard of, no. and you you form formulate a lot of really good um, friendships and relationships. But then once the project is done, everybody goes their own way. And, you know, when you're when you're in the same room for, for four months with the same people, you get very close. You yeah. know, you get very close and you share a lot of a lot of very intimate, um, you know, situations. And uh, boom, when the project is finished, everybody goes on their own way. And it's like, OK, next project in. And I kind of miss that. I kind of regret not, um, you know, not being a little bit more. Um, st- staying in tune with with a lot of these people. Yeah. I mean, we we'll see each other every now and again, and you know, certainly exchange niceties and and remember good things. But um, yeah, the, the, you get very very close when you're in a four or five months. Yeah, yeah it's a good that's a good point because you go you're going through that together. You're working on a project together. You're shoulder to shoulder, basically working mm-hmm. on a serious project, and then and then it's over. Mm-hmm. Eight, eight, ten hours a day, yeah. you know, for three, four months, you do get close. Yeah. And I wish I had to just nourish the, those, continued to nourish those relationships more. Yeah. Well, so those would be the three little regrets. Other than yeah. that, um, I've loved every minute of it, as some band has coined. Well, you've certainly, <laughs> yeah, that's right. You've certainly had a full life and you're a super interesting guy. And you've been in the room for a lot of interesting times and, and projects and stuff you can look back on and feel pretty good about all that. Very cool. Yep, I do. I do. I, I look back and I'm I'm very satisfied with the journey that I've had. There's no question. I, I should mention just just uh, one one thing, um, w- which was my my very first session um, um, was with Funkadelic Par- Parliament Funkadelic, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you you know of them, but and George Clinton, but um, the session was booked in Toronto. This is my first session as as an independent engineer or a, a solo engineer. And they were they were booked to come in at twelve thirty at night. Now, Terry Brown was going to do it, but he said, "Oh, you know what? I'm too busy doing other things." David, why don't you make this your your first session? Sure, great. I'm thrilled. I'm happy to do that. Twelve thirty comes. I'm uh, all set up and ready for uh, George Clinton to walk in, and th- I'm waiting. It's three o'clock. Comes as a knock on the back door, and he comes with his uh, big white feathered uh, coat and uh, and sparkling glasses <laughs> and se- sequined pants and an entourage of about eight party goers oh, all behind all behind him going yo and he's got got his uh, multi-track tape it was a 16 track no it was an eight track tape at that time um and he said here you go you know boy and put this up we're gonna do boot uh bootsy bootsy collins here on the bass we're gonna do a bass track and then we're gonna do some party vocals oh wow so okay 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 so i put the tape up and uh, sure enough we went through and within within 10 minutes we recorded bootsy collins playing bass on this tune that was pretty pretty raw pretty raucous and then the party continued they were all just blasted when they came in and even more blasted (laughs) when they left but uh, you know a couple of vocal mics out there and the the vocals that he was talking about was just 
um, party sounds are there. They're out yeah. there just, you know, yahooing and yeah, that's you know, funny. all that stuff. Yeah. So by, by four o'clock they were gone. So that was, that was my first session with George Clinton and Funkadelic. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you must've seen lots of scenes in, uh, you know, I read the book about, uh, recording Live cause I read, uh, um, the Allman brothers book and they said it was like drug city, you know, anything you wanted, you could get in the studio. It was one of those chaotic sort of mm-hmm. environments. Right. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I stayed away from that yeah. pretty darn well, you know, cause, uh, as I said, I was a dad, yeah. you know, and, uh, yeah, Good for you, you. you got, you got to stay, you got to stay clear on, on all of that that you yeah. can get you and seen enough of that happen. Yeah. Well, you and I both, and, and then dealing with mm-hmm. these uh, eccentric sort of musicians that aren't, that are kind of living in an alternate reality. You, mm-hmm. It's hard to, to rein them in sometimes too, right? Yeah, that's true. This can slip away pretty quickly. Yeah. Oh, well, that's as too many of them have. Yeah. Yes. No, it's a, well, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to share this stuff with me. I know that you're, you're not a household name, but, but really have been in the room and done lots of interesting things. And I wanted to get you on the podcast and talk to you about it. Oh, well, thanks, Dan. Many thanks to David Hayes for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from his incredible experiences in the music business. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media as well so others can enjoy it. You can also become a member if you'd like notifications and other inside information and perks we'd love to have on board. And we'd also invite you to listen to Dusty Discs Radio Tuesdays and Thursdays to hear music from the Canadian artists you're hearing on this show. So until next time, I'm Dan Hayes.